Well, what comes to your mind when you hear the word anger? Perhaps it's the voice of a parent yelling at you. Perhaps it's the scowl that's been etched in your mind of a friend who is laying into you one time. Perhaps it's the pain of your clenched jaws as you've endured injustice unfolding either before you or happening to you. Traditionally, anger has been divided clearly between those who get angry, the red-faced eruptors, divided from the calm and cool collectedness of those who don't struggle with anger. But truth be told, we each struggle with anger. It's just expressed in different ways. In his outstanding book, Good and Angry, David Powelson says this clearly. Anger is the reaction that incinerates marriages and disintegrates families. It energizes gossip and guns down classmates. It divides churches. It turns friendship into enmity. It erupts into road rage. It's the stuff of every form of grievance and bitterness. Anger is also the basic DNA of complaining, of brooding, of irritability, and of bickering. This morning, I think we're all well aware of the dangers of explosive anger. The type of anger that's willing to spare no expense in expressing its fury. If you've ever seen Inside Out. The little character, Anger. But I wonder this morning, are we as well acquainted with the kind of anger and the dangers that lie in the anger expressed in quiet brooding, in judgmental thoughts, in low-grade irritability, in a critical spirit, and the defensive withdrawal. I mean, I just want to be clear. If your attitude is, I don't get angry, I get even. You have an anger problem. And so the question this morning isn't, who among us gets angry? The better question among us is, why do we all get angry? In one of the most memorable chapters that I've ever read in a book, again, I would commend this book if this is an area that you feel like is of particular struggle or an area that others around you would encourage you to give attention to, David Pallison's book, Good and Angry, is really helpful. In fact, it's so helpful that I've memorized one of his whole chapters in the book. Chapter two of his book, let me see if I can recall it, the title of the book is, Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? And this is how he unfolds the chapter. Yes. Chapter three. <laughs> the whole chapter is one word. Yes. And so I'm wondered, or I, I wonder this morning if you are convinced 
that you should give attention to this topic? When was the last time you asked those around you? How does my anger affect you? Uh, truth be told, um, this is an area that I am in constant need of grace in. Uh, recently talking to the guys in our community group, having conversations with my daughters and just going, the number of times that I am short with my daughters out of frustration and irritability and anger, it's embarrassing. And yet the number of times I circle around to apologize to them is woefully lacking. And so I stand this morning heralding this word as one who is in great need of it. And I just want to ask you, are you convinced that you are angry? And some of you know you are. And I wonder this morning if you're convinced that there is a grace that is greater than your anger that there really is hope, that you don't have to go to your grave being bitter and critical and angry. I pray, I have prayed this week, that that grace would find us all this morning and bring healing. And so before we jump into Ephesians chapter 4, I want to pray that again for our time. So let's pray. Our holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for your word, which is truth. And your word, it's convicting. And it doesn't convict to merely leave us wounded. It convicts to show us our need and then to take us to the solution. And so I pray this morning that Ephesians chapter 4 would wound where appropriate and would heal where needed. And Lord, I just confess that so much of my anger, it's confusing, it's damaging. I harm people that I love. And though I don't often get loud and large, my self-righteous anger is not profitable for anyone. And yet in light of my need, I praise you this morning for your kindness and your mercy and your grace. The songs that we've been singing this morning, Lord, have mercy on us, and in Christ you have. Lord, you are a good and gracious king. We can come to you with our burdens. And so I pray that you would use this sermon to spotlight the sin of anger, to bring about the fruit of repentance, to lead us to be a more unified body, more fervently engaged on what we have been redeemed to do. And so I pray that you would open every door and window of our hearts. You would come in and you would establish footholds for your mercy and your grace and your compassion. May we let go of our anger and stop giving the devil a place. And so for that to happen, I pray that the sermon that is heard would be far more effective than the one that is preached. 
And so do your work by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're new to Covenant Life or you're visiting this week, thank you for being here. Uh, We understand it is a sweet privilege uh, to have friends among us. And uh, perhaps you you may be wondering, okay, Ephesians chapter 4, is this part of a series? Are we walking through Ephesians chapter 4? If you were here last week, you saw that we weren't in Ephesians chapter 4. We were in uh, the book of Matthew. The steady diet here at Covenant Life is we walk through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. For example, we've been working our way all through the second book of the Psalms, just going in consecutive order. Uh, This summer, we will begin a consecutive verse by verse, chapter by chapter study through the letter of Galatians. But from time to time, we do have standalone sermons or standalone sermon series. And we do that in order to, uh, to address prevalent matters in the life of our church. And the reality is that as our elders sat around last fall and we were praying about where we would go, we just began to talk about the increasing counseling, counseling load that we've been experiencing. And some of the themes that are coming out in a lot of our counseling have to do with anxiety, have to do with anger, and have to do with apathy. And so we wanted to have a, a, a venue where the Word of God would address those things. We didn't want merely to sort of work this into a passage where the point of that passage wasn't this topic and this issue. And so we're working through this three-week series of Grace Greater. The sermons are still going to be grounded in a passage. We would call that expositional meaning that the point of the passage is going to be the point of the sermon. And so we're not trying to overlay our thoughts on top of a text. We're trying to say, this text speaks to this topic. Let's see what God has said about the topic through the text. And so last week we considered how God's grace is greater than our anxiety, and this week we will give attention to how his grace is greater than our anger. And so if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, 4 will be the large number, that will be the chapter, the smaller numbers or the verses will be in verses 25 through 32. And as we discussed last week, anytime you ever hear a standalone sermon, this is sort of standing by itself, it's not a part of a bigger series, sort of walking through what the author is intending and and, uh, the flow of the message it's helpful for us, the most important consideration is what is the context? Because it's possible for us to come to a verse, pull it out of its context, and make it mean almost anything we want it to mean. Well, the Bible wasn't written to have endless meanings. It was written with a clear meaning and a variety of applications. And so we won't fully understand what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 4 unless we understand the big picture of Ephesians and even particularly what he's doing in chapters 4 and 5. And so if I could just pull the camera back a little bit and just remind us, Ephesians is this letter as a whole highlighting how Jesus has reconciled all things to himself. And part of that in reconciling all things to himself is that he has united a people together. But the aim isn't just to know, okay, Jesus has been doing this, 
And Jesus has done this with a people, but the aim is to say, if all things are being reconciled to Christ, and Christ has, has made where there once were a lot of divisions among the people, he has now made one people by faith, how then do we live in light of that reality? And that's the letter of Ephesians. It's pressing. What do we, how do we walk this out? Not just how do we know the information, but how do we live in a certain way because of it? And when you get to Ephesians chapter 4, this begins to be accentuated. How do we walk this out? So if you have your Bibles, you can look down Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then Paul begins to spell that out. If you look down chapter 4, verse 17. You must no longer walk as those without, as those without God walk. And so it's all about, in light of these truths, how do we then live? that leads him to get to verses 22 through 24. Ephesians chapter 4. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. And so did you hear what he just said? He's talking about how do we live in light of these truths? And he gets to verse 22 and he says, there's this old self that we put off. And there's this new self that we put on. And then in our, the section that we're in this morning, 25 through 32, he gives us very practically five things to put off and five things to put on. And in each of those, there's a motivation for why we put them off and put it on. And so, if you look at verse 25, he says, get rid of falsehood. So put off falsehood, put on truthfulness. What's the motivation? Because we're members of one another. So if we're going to walk in a manner that's worthy of what we've been called to do, then we put off falsehood, we put on truthfulness, and we do this because we're members of one another. Verses 26 and 27. We get rid of anger. We put off anger. We put on short accounts. You say, that doesn't make a lot of sense. We're going to unpack this one. Why? Because we give no opportunity for the devil. So put off anger. Put on short accounts to give no opportunity or place for the devil. He continues, verse 28. Put off theft replace it with honest work. What's the motivation? Because we share with those in need. Look at verse 29. Put off corrupt talk and replace it with upbuilding speech. Why? Because we want to give grace to those who hear and we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, verse 31 and 32, we put off malice and we, place it with, we replace it with kindness and forgiveness. What's the motivation? Because we have been forgiven by Christ. And then if you look at Ephesians chapter five, what do you see right out of the gate? Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just also as you have been loved. 
And so that's sort of what's happening in our passage, the context of our passage. So put off something, put on something, and there's a reason that you put it on. This morning, we're going to give attention to verses 26 and 27. Uh, Two verses of which John Piper, who just celebrated five decades in the ministry. What he would say about this topic of anger, he says, anger has probably ruined more relationships than sex and money. And so this morning, what I'd like for us to do is to consider God's good design for anger, man's distortion of anger. Most of the sermon is going to be in point number two. God's good design for anger, number one. Man's distortion of anger, number two. And then two practical helps with our anger. So that's where we're headed. We'll begin with God's good design for anger. God's good design for anger. Look again at verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. I trust that it will be helpful to give a basic just understanding of anger, a definition of anger that will sort of anchor us all as we seek to walk through Ephesians chapter 4, 26 and 27. David Pallison, again, in the book that I referenced earlier, says anger is the way we react when something we think is important is not the way that it's supposed to be. The way that we react when something we think important is not the way it's supposed to be. Ray Ortland says it's a judging emotion, that anger is a deeply felt response to wrong. And perhaps you've wondered, uh, why is anger such a problem? I mean, if anger is such a problem, why in the world would God even allow for anger? And perhaps you're here and you're tempted to think because of experiences that you've had with either the inability to control your anger or the sad reality of being under the wrath of another that the world would be a better place if it weren't for anger. And if you think this way, I just want to say not so fast. In fact, verse 26 begins with a command to be angry. And there's debate here over, is, is this sort of full Paul giving an imperative, a command, everybody be angry? Is that what's happening here? It's, it's sort of on the spot. He's telling everyone to be angry. I think that's a way to read it. But I understand this command to be similar to what Jesus says in John chapter 2, verse 19. John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus is speaking to the Jews that are demanding a sign. And he says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. I don't understand Jesus to be commanding them to destroy the temple. I understand this to be a concession command. That if you're going to tear down the temple, then I'm going to build it up. 
I understand Paul to be doing something similar. If you're going to be angry, then do not sin. I think about my parenting. I think I do this often with my children. I did a lot when they were younger. I would tell them, touch the oven and you're going to get burned. I'm so thankful they didn't say, Dad told me to touch the oven. <laughs> it's this command of concession. If you do this, then this is going to happen. If you do this, then this. But I believe how, whether we think it's a command to be angry or more of a concession command, if you do, then this will happen. I think the presence of this be angry and yet do not sin gives us an indication that there is indeed a good design for anger. That it's possible to be angry and not sinful in our anger. There's something better that God has so ordained and designed than what we normatively see and consider as it pertains to anger. What you may not know is this phrase that Paul is quoting is a quote from Psalm 4. Psalm 4.4. I'm helped by the ESV at this point. In uh, David, an evening prayer, the evening calling out to God in order to just acknowledge his trust. Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. And so in Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, this idea of be angry and do not sin means trust the Lord with the hardships that's going on. And then if you get to verse 8, what you'll see is the aim in not sinning in our anger is that we will be able to get peace. We will be able to lie down and rest secure because God is for us and with us. And so if I'm, anger, if I'm angered and sinfully angered, then I'm not going to be at peace. I will not feel the security. And so I understand in Ephesians 4, there's a note of let's do anger in the proper way so that we might have peace with God. It's helpful to remember that God the Father gets angry. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. It's helpful to remember that Jesus, too, gets angry. In the temple, he's angered and he begins to flip over the tables. If you remember, he's speaking to the Pharisees. He gets angered at them. He's standing before Lazarus' tomb, and the text tells us that he is angry. And so it's just helpful then for us to know as we think of anger that there is indeed a good and righteous design behind anger. Perhaps you're here, I don't know what your ambitions are, but perhaps you would just think, man, if I could just own a city, like if I just run a city, then I, like I would be living the dream. Proverbs 16, 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. If your ambition is to rule a city, Proverbs says, 
Get control of your anger. Think about Exodus chapter 34. Moses meets God on Mount Sinai. And in the interaction of just, this is who I am. Do you remember what God says? I am slow to anger. Slow to anger is an attribute of God. And so I don't think we want to say that all anger is sinful. It can't be. The fact that God grows angry is evidence that it's not merely a sinful emotion. Tim Keller, I think, is helpful here. He says, many people will say, well, I believe in a God of love, but not a God of anger. But if you have a God who is never angry, then rest assured that God is unloving. If you love and you see the thing that you love is harmed or threatened and you're not angered by it, then you aren't loving. Love in its purest form. Anger in its purest form is love in motion towards a threat against what you love. Anger in its purest form is love in motion towards a threat against what you love. One church father said, he that is angry without cause sins. But he who is not angry when there is cause sins. And so it's just helpful. There is a category. There is a good design that God has so given for righteous or redemptive anger. And whenever we find ourselves righteously or redemptively angry, what we're doing is we are joining God in his anger against that which is evil. That is a good anger to have. And perhaps maybe your confession this morning doesn't have to be, man, I keep blowing up. Man, I'm passive aggressive like crazy. But maybe I'm sinfully without anger towards things which I ought to be rightfully angered at. James chapter 1 is helpful here. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. It's interesting. He doesn't, James isn't saying you should never be angry. In verse 19, the verse above it, everyone must be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. And so the Bible doesn't say no to anger. It says slow to anger. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is opposed to sinful anger. And so before we consider the pitfalls of sinful anger, let's just remember God's good design for righteous redemptive anger. Anger is intended to seek justice. Anger is intended to protect what it loves. Anger is intended to punish any who harm its beloved. 
Anger is intended to reverse the damage done in a God-honoring way. And what's at the center of this righteous, redemptive anger? It's this commitment to saying, yes, God, it's your glory. Yes, God, it's your name. Yes, God, it's your renown. And any time something goes against that, we want to be moved and stirred to anger. And so, is your anger righteous? Is your anger redemptive? I mean, just think about the last week. What's made you angry? Does it look like this? If not, why? Leads us to our second consideration. Our second consideration, humanity's distortion of anger. Humanity's distortion of anger. Again, be angry and yet do not sin. The command to be angry that has the qualifier and yet do not sin clues us into this sad reality that we're all aware of, that it's possible to be sinfully angry. Nothing new. But I think this is where God's grace intends to serve and to care for us this morning. Because even in our struggle with anger, we can learn something about ourselves. You and I would do well to just allow the Spirit to run diagnostic over our anger. Our angers are revealing what we love. Your anger is the visual, or maybe even the internal feeling, but the visual depiction of what it is that you love. You're able to tell what you value by what it is that angers you. And so it's helpful for us to ask, what is it that I want? Ask those who you live with, what does my anger tell you that I want most? What are your fears? And most of our anger doesn't come and doesn't spring from valuing bad things. Most of it springs from valuing good things in the wrong way. And this is why it's so easy to be deceived by our anger. Because all of the while, it's for a good thing. And all of the while, we're in the middle of just losing our cool or withdrawing in coldness. And we know like we know this is not good and yet we continue to do it and we tell ourselves that we're right in expressing our anger this way. Think about this. The most broken thing in the world on any given day is never something that has happened to you. The most broken thing in the world on any given day is never something that has happened to you. But your and my greatest danger is to act that way. I mean, it's crazy to think of the things that we can't seem to let go of. Someone says something about us, there was a quick comment back, there was a jab that was underhanded. There was an implied post on social media. 
right? It is, it, it, it's crazy to think of the things that we can't seem to let go of. All the while, the injustices that are unfolding around the world. And we think, what provokes me to anger? Like, why is it most the person who cut me off in traffic or the brooding that happens whenever I feel disrespected? Why do the things that make us most angry always seem to happen to us? We clearly should feel displeasure in a broken world, but when it's consistently about the thing that angers me most is the things that are done to me, I think that reveals something broken in our value system. In our anger, we get so caught up with what we value that we don't ask enough if we should value this this much. Like, is my reputation really the thing? Is, is order in my home really the thing that I want to be most worked up about? And if it's not, why are those things the things that I'm most worked up about? And you just begin to put righteous anger next to sinful anger. And the difference is what's at the center. God and his glory and his renown, center of righteous anger. Me, in my way, in my comfort, center of sinful anger so much of the time. G.K. Chesterton said, how much larger our lives could be if we would only become smaller in them. We would become more interested in others and we would find ourselves more free. Again, I think Tim Keller was helpful. He says, disordered love creates disordered anger. And so your sinful anger is a disordered anger. And it's showing you not merely that you have an anger management problem. It's showing you that you have a disordered love problem. It's disordered in its cause. I mean, we get so much more angered about a snub against us than horrible injustices done across the world. It's disordered in its proportion right? You've, you've definitely walked into that type of anger or you have released that type of anger where someone asks you a question and you blow up and they're thinking, huh, what? Like, I got all of that? We're asking you what we're doing for dinner? It's disordered in its proportion. It's disordered in its goal. Redemptive anger wants to do this surgical strike on evil. Sinful anger wants to, de to destroy the wickedness in others. So often leading us not to go after the problem, but to go after the person. Righteous anger has redeeming fruit, but sinful anger doesn't. It leaves us just sort of burned out with this gray color of just cloud of exasperated frustration. It produces this sour pit in the, uh, the sour feeling in the pit of our stomach. This, it's, it, ang it alienates us from God. 
It doesn't move us toward acts of faith and love and true justice, but rather it moves us toward sullen withdrawal or irritability or rudeness or bitterness. Sinful anger is characterized by this self-oriented grief or self-pity, not godly grief over evil. And sinful anger produces the cancer of cynicism that eats away at our faith. And so how about you? I mean, how do you respond when you are angered? Do you seethe on the inside? Do you whisper threats under your breath because you're boiling on the inside? Do you regret looking over the nice things that have been done prior? Do you look for ways to get even? Do you take passive jabs? Do you complain? Do you take out your anger on the next person that you see? When your trust is betrayed and you're lied about, do you get hooked on the injustice of it all? I mean, this is, what, this is how humanity has distorted anger. Sinful anger, anger gone wrong, is all about our kingdom, our ways, and our desires. It makes us the judge to determine what's fair, what's unfair. And again, as we said earlier, most angry people feel justified in their anger. Even when they're doing terrible things. Anger gone wrong in others? Oh, we clearly pick that up. Anger gone wrong in our hearts, and somehow we always seem to miss it. I mean, what is complaining? Except to say, well, if we were God, we would do it different. What is getting even except saying, well, God isn't doing anything, so I will. What is condemning others except to say, well, I'm going to take God's place as judge. Again, David Pallison, anger flares up too quickly. It alienates too many relationships. It burns too long. It causes too much pain. It hides too well, and it feels too good. A great indication that our anger is not righteous is that we find ourselves more angered over someone's sin against us than their sin against God. And let's just be clear, if anger is required because of sin, it's fundamentally because it's a sin against him. Long before it's ever because it's a sin against you. And so what's made you angry this month? What's kept you up at night? What's caused you to lash out? Is it the talking behind your back? Is it the mistreatment that you feel? Is it the disrespect? Is it others taking advantage of you? And what has hooked you with anger this week? And do you believe that those things are the most offensive things that have been done against God? If not, why are we more angry about those things than about others? Righteous anger is more concerned about the reputation of God than our own. And you say, I don't even know what this looks like. Like, it sounds great, pretty idealistic. I don't even know what it looks like. Just look unto Jesus. I mean, consider Jesus. 
He was mistreated, he was mocked, he was abused, he was unjustly tried, he was unjustly sentenced, he was unjustly murdered, and yet he never got angry at the folks who were doing this to to him. He went like a lamb to slaughter to people before the people who unjustly treated him. And what do we find in Jesus? Jesus being angered at different points, but his anger was always in a defense of the honor of his, his father. And I think we would do well to be angry at those things. And here's the good news, that the work of Jesus wasn't merely an example for you to follow. Though it's there as an example. We want to imitate Christ, but it's more than an example Because the work of Jesus and how he endured mistreatment and how he rightly handled his anger, it accomplished something for you and I. It accomplished something that we couldn't accomplish. And so this morning, I want you to know that there is a grace that is greater for all of us who are angry, who think that the solution to our anger is to act like in front of everybody else that it's not a problem, but yet to seethe on the inside. And to have places in our lives where we just fly off the handle or we're sinfully responsive in other ways. There's this tendency to want to suppress the truth about our anger. And just so you know, if you leave here and you you just think, well, I'm just going to deny it a little bit more. I'm just going to pretend that it isn't real. That may keep you blowing up for a little while, but it will fail to deal with the reason why unjust anger finds so much fertile soil in your heart. We suppress this truth because we don't want to admit that we live our lives with self at the center. For most of our anger, that's the problem. And I just want you to know that if you've walked in and you are littered with anger, You feel like you've been a slave to anger. I want you to know that doesn't go away over time. No, this problem requires that there would be the work of another that would be credited to our account. We need something done for us that we can't do for ourselves. And this is where the work of Jesus frees us. And so to my angry friends this morning, Jesus' work, And his grace is greater than your anger. The answer isn't to hide your sinful anger and look like you're still righteous, but it's to confess your anger so that you can have true righteousness. Anger is not the way to justify and to defend and to protect ourselves. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James 1.20 We need the righteousness of God. And that's why we try to hide and and defend ourselves and to accentuate the good. Our sinful anger hurts others and a desire to protect ourselves. I just want you to know God in great mercy and grace has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to offer you and I something infinitely better. His righteous anger at our sin led him to crush his son so that we might be protected. I mean, the problem that you have with sin is not merely a problem that you have with others. It is fundamentally a problem that you have with God. 
And you are guilty. You are guilty before God with anger in your heart, sinful anger in your heart. And so you need, you need righteous anger in your heart. You need forgiveness of all of the sinful anger. And only the work of Christ, his sinless life, his death on a cross as the substitute for all who would turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in him. Yeah, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ so that those who would repent and believe could be spared from that wrath and could know the possibility of living for something bigger than ourselves and having our anger be righteous. And on the third day, Christ triumphed over the grave, defeating sin, defeating death. And the good news of the Christian faith is that you and I don't have to protect ourselves anymore because God is more than capable of protecting us. And he's done that in the person and the work of Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, we would plead with you. Your biggest problem this morning is not how do you kind of get your anger under control. Your biggest problem is how do you solve the hostility that's between you and God. And understand that sinful anger is the fruit of that. It doesn't mean that once you become a Christian that you'll never struggle with sinful anger. No, but it does mean that you are not facing a battle that you can't win. Because repentance and faith, you get the Holy Spirit who then guides you and leads you in the truth and the way everlasting. Christ delivered us from our greatest enemy and saved us from our greatest fear. He went to the cross in our place and so therefore we have nothing to be afraid of anymore. We deserve the cross. We have nothing to be proud of anymore. And so without fear and without pride, then we have no reason to be so sinfully angry anymore. Non-Christian friends, trust in Christ. And to my angry Christian brothers and sisters, keep preaching this good news to yourself to so overwhelm yourself with his love. The more that he increases in your heart and mind, the more that you will become angered in all of the right ways. And so it should not surprise you But if your Bible sits days upon days unopened, that you're not exposing yourself to the revelation of God in and through his word, it shouldn't surprise you that your anger continues to go unchecked. If you're not confessing your sin and bring it into the light, it shouldn't surprise you. And so this morning, would you receive his love and mercy to allow all of this to flow? You're struggling with anger. You're frustrated with life. You long for justice. You want to cling to your rights. You want to demand your own ways. There's a grace that's greater than that. You don't have to live that way anymore. Your wounds will not be healed by you wounding others to get even. No, your wounds will be healed as you look upon the wounds of your Savior who has done for you what you cannot do. And you won't find peace by condemning others who mistreat you. No, but you will find peace by gazing on the one who endured scorn and mistreatment for your sake. Leads us to the two practical helps. The first one is do not let the sun go down on your anger. Jonathan Edwards says it's a very sinful thing for a person to be long angered. Even righteous anger 
can destroy those who never let go of it. Think about Jesus in the temple. He flips over the tables. Do you know what happens right after that? People come up and they're asking him, can they heal him? And a few verses later, there's children running around. I'm just going, if I see a guy lose his cool, I'm not saying, hey, kids, go run around that man. (laughs) But here's the thing. Jesus acted righteously upon righteous anger, and he let it go. Even the righteous anger that we have, if held on too long, gives opportunity for bitterness. We live in a broken world, and if you want to, you can find stuff to be angry at all the time. Watch the news, it will make you angry. And yet God does not intend for his people to walk around so wound up, so tight, righteous anger all of the time. No. Jesus would use his anger for a loving, good action, and then he would move on. The most mistreated man in the history of the world was not angry all of the time. Selfish anger thinks, oh, I'm just going to let them stew in their misery for a while. It serves them right. Selfish anger relishes the offender's ongoing sufferings. But righteous anger doesn't hold out. It doesn't nurse a grudge. It doesn't let a relational wound fester over time. We, We risk losing an opportunity for reconciliation, and we risk settling in to our own hypocrisy before God. Christian anger is eager to restore peace. And so who do you need to be reconciled to this morning? This is the Christian life. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on it. For all of the ways that time can heal, when it comes to anger, time can hurt. And one of the practical reasons not to trust our anger to time is that delaying reconciliation always makes reconciliation harder. Addressing and dealing with our anger later always makes addressing and dealing with our anger harder. We normally don't wake up with the same resolve to reconcile. Most of the time, after 24 hours, sin will seem not as terrible as it really is, and true reconciliation will seem not as sweet as it really is. And so take advantage of the anger that you feel and frustrate Satan's plans for your fury. And that leads us to the second help. Give no opportunity to the devil. I mean, this is what sinning in anger and not being quick resolved, quick to resolve our anger does. It gives the devil an opportunity. The devil preys on angry hearts. I would just encourage you, look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, the story of Cain and Abel. It's interesting. They, have, they make sacrifices, and the Lord shows up and says, Cain, why are you angry? And do you know what it leads to? Murder. And so then we begin to understand Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. Ah, yeah, that same seed that led one to kill another, it resides within the sin of anger. Giving place to the devil is what we do when we go to bed night after night, seething over the way that we've been wronged. 
To refuse to surrender our anger is to welcome the devil to wreak havoc in our hearts and our relationships. It allows him to take new ground and to extend his stay in any given situation. And so friends, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Even the good anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. In a conversation with a fellow pastor, Tim Kaine, he gave this example and it stuck with me. He said, imagine going into a job interview and you get out of the car and you spill coffee on your shirt and you walk in and the receptionist is like, wow, you spilled coffee on your shirt. And you say, yeah, I know, this is awkward. Uh, I don't know what to do. She's like, I mean, you, you spilled a lot of coffee on your shirt. I mean, that thing has multiple colors to it. Like, there, there is a... And the whole time, she keeps talking about this stain on your shirt. What do you do? You sort of want to just say, I, I can't go into the interview without a shirt. Like, I understand it's a problem, but what am I supposed to do? Now imagine that stain identifier behind the desk not only notices your shirt that's stained, but then offers you a clean one. How do you feel? Ah, you didn't just point out a problem that I had, you pointed me to a solution. And so church, as we seek to walk together in the days ahead, putting to death anger, telling one another of their anger problem will never lead them to take it off. It's whenever we can point to a better solution. It's whenever we can point to the work of Christ. It's whenever we can point to the example of Christ. It's whenever we can say, brother, sister, you don't have to go on in your anger. There's a grace that's greater than that. And so Paul doesn't just say in Ephesians chapter 4, you have an anger problem, but he offers something better to put on instead. And because of Jesus, there's no more sinful anger that's needed. And so, church, let's drink of his mercy and grace and be angry and yet do not sin. Let's pray. Our holy God, by your spirit, would you show us where we need to walk in confession and in repentance? Would you make us a people who are angered at all of the right things? and who are godly, not just in what we're angered over, but in how we live with our anger and live with one another in theirs. And so in this moment of silence, just show us what we need to change. Show us how we need to walk anew. And if there be people here who've never trusted you, I pray that they would turn from their sin and trust in the work of Jesus as their only hope for not living for self. And so speak now. Your servants are listening.